Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 16. Now it came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. Now David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the the people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And he said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized my seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm. And I have brought them here to the Lord, to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young men who were with him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien in Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, your blood is on your head. for Your mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now you remember, you hopefully remember, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel, but 1 Samuel chapter 31 ends with the account of the death of Saul. You remember that the first few verses of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel are this. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. So 
You see there's discrepancies between the report of the Amalekites and the report of the, the narrator, the report of the writer of uh, 1 Samuel. And so um, we, the, the first thing we have to do is come to terms with that. Are there two different accounts of the, of the death of Saul? And, and it's, it's rather easy. I think you, you understand that the first is the account of the death of Saul. And 2 Samuel 1 is the account of the Amalekite uh, who had probably ulterior motives in coming to David and telling a different story, right? So he's lying. The Amalekite's a liar, and he, um, he is trying to get something out of his lies. And so the, the account of the death that, um, that we take as genuine is, is 1 Samuel, and then we get the Amalekite's account, which is a lie. Now, think, think for a moment on Saul, the despiser of God's commands, right? He was a despiser of God's commands. He did not want to do what, the, what God required of him. He, he also was an afflictor of God's people, right? Think of the, the ridiculous burdens that he placed upon the people of Israel, um, to the point where he was ready to kill his son Jonathan for dipping his staff into the honey to taste and brighten his eyes. Right, That man is now dead. And it's also the man that on several occasions attempted to put to death the Lord's anointed, right, David himself. And, um, and so we see, we see the tragic end of an unbeliever. This is the tragic end of an unbeliever. Um, clearly, Saul was not a regenerate man. Clearly, Saul was not a man who feared God, being, being one who despised his commands, and, and a man of very many excuses as well. He, he defended himself and his own reputation rather than defending the reputation of the Lord. And so the unbeliever has met his end. And now, think of it, Saul sits in the grave and awaits the resurrection at the end of the ages where he will receive the due penalty for his sins. Right? He's waiting that final judgment. Just like all who have gone to the grave, Saul awaits the grave for the judgment of God to come upon him. At least his body does. His soul has been judged. Right? Now, now we transition. So 1 Samuel is, is a book about Saul. I mean, it's about Samuel, right? He gets the title, but it's about Saul. It's about the kingdom. It's about the prophet and his relationship to the kings. But 1 Samuel is about Saul. Saul dies at the end of the first, first book. And then now we transition into David. And the rest of of 2 Samuel is going to be all about King David. And uh, it is true, right, the, the Jewish Bible does not split the book, right? It doesn't split the book, so it, it's arbitrary that we have these split into uh, two books. Um, but it makes sense that it would be right here because it's a transition between Saul and David. Now, what kind of ruler would... What, what contrast of a ruler would we get out of David? What we know about David is he's a man who is concerned not about his own reputation, but he's concerned about the reputation of God, right? We've already seen him deal with Goliath and 
why was David offended um, at what was going on there? Because Goliath and the Philistines were taunting the God of Israel, right? So David, David is undone by that. It's not his own reputation. It's the reputation of Yahweh himself that David gets uh, bent out of shape about. And so um, that, that's, I think that's what it means to have a, um, a heart that, a heart after God, right? God is concerned about that his name would be praised, right? And so a man that has a heart after, after God is, is a man who, who's concerned about the same things, the, the reputation, the glory, the, um, the, 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 just the, everything that, the testimony of God's faithfulness. And so now we're going to see a, a ruler with a different heart, a ruler that's set apart, for, a ruler that has a regenerate heart, first of all, and um, then beyond that, a ruler that um, begins the ruler of the kingdom with a very different um, purpose. David's exile is over, right? David has been honed to be the king by being in exile. He's had his own wilderness wandering where God has disciplined him for the purpose of becoming king. Saul didn't have something like that. Saul didn't have a a wilderness period. He was just plucked out of nowhere and became king. But David has has been out of even the land of Israel, right? Running among the Philistines and having to learn to uh, minister to, to cities, having to learn how to fight, having to learn um, all these things that will, will have trained him for uh, being a king. Uh, we notice at the end of 31 also, and this is something that I didn't mention when we were in 1 Samuel 31, is that, do you remember what the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead do? For, for Saul. Remember what they do at the end? What do they do? They go and recover his body. And, and it's, a, it's a testimony to us that even unbelievers should be honored in their deaths, right? All, all men, in a sense, should be honored in their deaths. He he, as the king of Israel, is, is honored by his people. Jabesh Gilead is, is where he's from, um, right? And they go and um, they uh, recover his body uh, from the walls where he is being, uh, where he's on display, right? And why is he on display? To, to humiliate him, to humiliate Israel, Right? So Jabesh Gilead goes and takes down his body. And that is precisely what Saul, in his death, in those last words, wanted to avoid. Right? His being made a mockery of. He said, the uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. Well, that's making sport when you are, um, when you are, uh, when your body is dealt with in the way it is. And so, uh, they honor they honor him even in their death. Now into Second Samuel, the first action attributed to David here is the slaughter of the Amalekites, and it, it can't be that that's uh, a coincidence, right? The Amalekites were the thorn in the side 
in, in Saul's flesh. Um, he did not adequately deal with the Amalekites. And then right here at the beginning of this letter, now it came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. Right? So he's out um, finishing and uh, contributing to this work. Uh, remember chapter 30. Chapter 30, David uh, returned to Ziklag. And what, what did he find? That the wife and children were all uh, abducted and the city was burned to the ground, right? And so the, um, this, this is referring back to that, his slaughter of the Amalekites because of what they did there in, in taking, taking the, the family. Now, then this man appears. He's troubled. He's mourning. We know that because he comes with teared clothes and uh, dust on his head. And he falls to the ground before David. He prostrates himself, a, a posture of humility, showing respect to David. And David's, David wants to know, you know, like we all would, who are you and where are you from? And he says, um, I've come from the camp of Israel. And so David's ears perk up. And then David wants to know, well, Tell me how things went, what happened, um, how, did, uh, how did it go? And the man tells him that um, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So this report, and this is true, this is the true part of what he's saying. He's reporting the death of Saul and Jonathan, which for... For David, in both cases, would have been a shock to him, right? Um, Jonathan, and just the fact that he had an intense love for Jonathan and a covenanted, um, a, a covenant that that they would, uh, in the kingdom, work together as brothers. And then Saul is the Lord's anointed, and we know what's, what David thinks of the Lord's anointed, as despicable as the Lord's anointed might be. You know, we read it in this morning that verse from, what was it, 1 Peter 2, where it says, you know, submit to your ruler, submit to your masters. And not just the ones who are good, but the ones who are, who are unbelievers, who are nasty. And you think of David and Saul. You think of the amazing amount of strength it took for David to submit himself to Saul. And in the end, to, to wait on the Lord until the Lord had dealt with Saul before he took the reins of the kingdom, even though he had already been anointed for the task. Anyway, so this man, this man comes, and then he says that they've died, and David says, how do you know that Saul and his, his son Jonathan are dead? And this is where the lies begin. This is where the story begins, right? He says, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, and Mount Gilboa is the right place, so he, he's, he's, he knows enough about the situation to um, make it appear that he's coming from knowledge. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and um, behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely, and when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And, he, and I answered, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me. 
For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, what things stand out to you in that? Let's be a little interactive in the, tonight. What stands out to you in that? Anna? Just kidding. I'm not going to call you out. Okay, yeah, he has some of the jewelry. He clearly was there or got these down the road somewhere, but um, likely he was pilfering, he was going through the camp, he was taking materials, and here he found, aha, this is a, this is a good takeaway, and, aha, I can use this for further benefit. And so when he sees those, he, he determines this plan by which he's going to go to David and try to worm his way into David's favor, right? So yeah, that's, that's certainly one thing that stands out to me. He's an opportunist, right? This man's an opportunist. It doesn't turn out well in the end, but he's an opportunist. That Saul would be what? Where does it say that? Oh, he's leaning on his staff, right? Um, there's some there's some question about what that means, right? He's leaning on his staff means either he's wounded and supporting himself before he falls, or. But I, but I don't think there's a flee, fleeing here. He, it could indicate that he's wounded. He's not fleeing. He's unable to flee. Um, anything else stand out? Amalekites? The Amalek? The Amalekite? What's he doing? I mean, I guess I get a higher first or something, but what's he doing there? Okay. Right? That, I mean, that is who um, Saul is and Israel are fighting the Philistines. And so this Amalekite um, is somebody that David had, or as a people, David had been dealing with. But he also admits that he's an alien in Amalekite. So this seems to be some Amalekite who emigrated to Israel and was familiar with Israel. So it's it's... It's, a, it's a, a sojourner within Israel, right? Later in, chap, in 13, it says, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so it seems that he's close, closely affiliated with Israel by um, being a, a sojourner in their midst. Any? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's... Yeah, he's trying to get... He, again, he's trying to impress the king. He knows enough about David and Saul, but not enough about David and Saul. 
He does not know how David has refused to kill the Lord's anointed. And so he thinks he's doing David a favor in this, right? But David has been all about protecting the man whom God puts into play, right? And so, um, but then, yeah, there's also a second excuse that dude was going to die. And I, I just had mercy upon him. You know, and this passage becomes very uh, much known for, um, I, I don't think there's any support that we can get out of this for, for euthanasia, for anything along those lines, given that it, it's a false testimony, it's not commending this at all, um, that there's nothing commendable in it. Um, but um, often the topic comes up in this passage about whether Saul, I mean, it comes up in the previous passage as well because Saul, Saul's the one who requests, look, put me to death. But notice the difference. One, the Amalekite, he says, put me to death for I'm, the pains have seized me. Why, doesn't he want to be, why does he want to be put to death previously? Because of honor. Right? Because he doesn't, he doesn't want the, the enemies of Israel to make sport of him. So there's, there's some nobility in Saul's actions for real. But there's none in the report that the Amalekite makes. Kill me because the pains have seized me. That's no reason to die. But, but even there's some nobility at least in what, what Saul says. Though, though a man like Saul who has defended his reputation many, many times previously as we've gone through the book may be thinking selfishly even in that. I can't abide the thought of people making sport of me of my dead body after I leave. I mean, that, that could be petty as well. Right, but it's certainly different than, than um, what the Amalekite reports. So, yeah, that stands out to me. The difference is there. Anything else stand out to you? How? He was a what? Yes. Right. Sure. Could be. It could be, for sure. Yeah, there, you, you wouldn't think that there would be any advantage for him to tell David that he's an Amalekite. Um, the, the, there are differences, obviously, between the accounts. Um, <clears throat> uh, think think uh, what, what isn't said in the previous one, he's badly wounded by archers. And, and on, in the Amalekite's account, he's leaning on his, his staff or his sword. Um, Saul calls to his armor bearer, whereas in this story, Saul calls to this man. Now, it makes sense that Saul would call to his armor bearer. Their armor bearer is supposed to stay next to his man until, until the end. And uh, to think that the king of Israel would be in battle without anybody else around him is, is ludicrous. The king of Israel would be surrounded by men, surrounded by um, protection. His armor bearer would be with him. And yet this Amalekite says that he was, you know, hey, dude, I need your help. I'm all by myself out here. It's just part of the concoction of the story. Um, Saul, and so um, he, he says, kill me so uncircumcised will not, um, will not make sport of me, whereas the Amalekite says, kill me, I'm in pain. And, 
and the life still lingers in me. Um, the the uh, armor bearer does what? Nothing. He refuses to kill the, the anointed, right? So the armor bearer understands something about, um, has some sentiment similar to David's. So the armor bearer refuses it, and, uh, the, but the Amalekite says that, you know, after the request, he, he goes through with it. And then remember that Saul kills himself. Saul falls on his sword, leans onto his sword and kills himself. And, um, and so this is suicide. And the armor bearer then, seeing what happens, kills himself as well. That's right. And then the, um, the one part of the Amalekite story that's true is he took the crown and the bracelet. Right? That part is true. At some point, he ends up with the, the, uh, the crown and the bracelet. Now, what is David's response? David's response is grief. He tears his clothes, and not just himself, but all the men along with him. Every one of the men along with him tear their clothes when they hear of the defeat of Israel, of the, of the death of Jonathan, and the other sons, and of Saul. And so he tears his clothes, and then what does it say they do? What do they do? They mourn and wept and fasted until evening. Right? I mean, think of, think of the end. David calls a young man to kill this guy. But think of all that took place before that, right? They, David doesn't immediately respond to him, you're going to die. Which may have been a way that Saul may have responded to him. But David does the important work first of mourning, right? The whole day and all of his men, they spend in mourning. And so they, they mourn and... Um, <clears throat> And they mourn not just for Saul and for Jonathan. It says that they mourn for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. They mourn for all those people. And then David questions the Amalekite. Where, where are you from? And he says, an alien. And then this, this um, intense question. Why were you not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Why were you not afraid? Right? Why, why should he have been afraid? He wasn't. Why should he have been afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? Because the wrath of God. Right? Because God, what God had raised up, this man was not to take down, right? Why were you afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David, of course, um, had been afraid, right? A repenting even of, of coming close to taking out the Lord's anointed. Even repenting of having dishonored the Lord's anointed by, by tearing, you know, cutting off his robe. He repents over that. He had fear um, and so he shows a, a, a greater fear here than the Amalekite. Of course, the Amalekite 
didn't kill him. But he's reporting that he did. Right? So we're giving him uh, the benefit of the doubt. We're taking him at his word, right? As we think through this. So then David, this incredible action of calling for a young man to kill him, and he does. Why do you think David calls for a young man to do this work? That perplexes me. Why would a young man? I mean, I don't really have an answer for that. He didn't want to do it himself. Let the blood guiltiness be on somebody else. Well, there isn't blood guiltiness here because the, um, the law is being enacted. This man has said he killed the Lord's anointed. He's being killed himself. But um, perhaps, perhaps he didn't want to do it himself. Cade, what do you think? That's right. Sure. I got you. Why did he call a young man? I don't know either. Any ideas on that? Is it to humiliate the Amalekite? You're reading the notes in your bot. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, this is David training. This is David raising up a generation of, of, of young men who would, who would protect the Lord's anointed, right? I mean, it could be simply that, that he is um, uh, doing that. Um, I, mean, I mean, Saul, I mean, Sam, Samuel hacks apart Agag. You know, he did it himself. I, I don't think it would have been wrong for David himself to do this, although it may have been viewed, it may have been viewed as uh, vengeance. You know, his, his love for Jonathan led him to kill this Amalekite who said he killed him. It may have been perceived that way, but he gave the command, so he bears responsibility anyway, so it could be taken that way. Yeah. All the old people were still mourning. They were in the house of mourning. I know one thing in tribal cultures, young men are the ones who all passion in there and try to do the same thing. Yeah. To try to please their, their, their chief. Yeah. The um, young men have the, uh, the passion and the will, but we have examples in Scripture where the young don't want to do these sorts of things. They don't want to uh, step forward. Um, Certainly in the armor bearer's example. Um, one time when, I don't remember when, but David asked someone to kill someone, and he wouldn't. And then he asked the young man to do it, and the young man wouldn't do it. Now, right. I was thinking of the time when Saul asked somebody to kill all the priests, and they wouldn't. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, Doeg, the Edomite. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There, there is um, something to think through here. Um, it, it may have been a political move. It may have been um, that he. Uh, it may have been a pedagogical move. It may have been. Um, uh, it may have been him bringing bringing a coalition around him as he's becoming now uh, the king. Um, and then finally, so so they they tore their clothes. They mourn for a day. David questions the guy. He calls for the young man to kill him. He's killed. And then there's basically curses on him for his blood guiltiness. Your blood is on your head for your mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You're guilty. You have said you killed the Lord's anointed. And, um, and so he is executed for, for his crime. And then, you know, we, we step back and we say, why would the Amalekite invent this story? Why? Why? Why would the Amalekite, here's the question, and, and young, young men and women, listen to this. Why would the Amalekite invent this story? Why is the question, why would he lie? Why would the Amalekite lie? He's a con man and a thief, right? Why do you lie? To get something to improve your circumstances that don't look so good at the moment. You can either wait on the Lord, you can either, you, you can, you can um, work in a, a noble sense to re- restore your, your dignity and your, um, you know, the sense of, of right, but you, can, um, but you can also lie, right? You can lie. And that immediately and in a quick way improves your circumstances, doesn't it? That's the, always the temptation with lying. Boy, I could really, I really need out of this situation. And there are a few things I could do. One's very painful, but one's really quick and easy. Right? That's why we lie. And it dishonors God because he's told us not to bear false witness. He's told us not to lie. Um, there are a few reasons we lie. To improve our circumstances or to unjustly gain a reward. Right? You lie so that you get what, what you wouldn't have gotten if you had told the truth. Right? I, I, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to be spanked. Well, I didn't hit my brother. And then you earn no spank through a lie. Right? Parents aren't there. They didn't witness whether the action happened. You have to take your children at their word. Right? And the temptation for the child in that situation is to lie because immediately they'll get out of the action. But God sees. Right? God knows. God knows every time you bear false witness. God knows every time you twist your parents up to get out of something in order to get a reward. Right? Did you finish your homework? If you finish your homework, you can have dessert. Oh, I finished my homework. Because you want the apple pie. Right? And so you tell a lie to get that reward. This, that's, that's the simple, easy thing that the Amalekite is doing here. He wanted his apple pie before he finished his, his homework. 
Right? He wants David to be in debt to him. And for David to be, oh, thank you. Thank you for, for restoring the, the jewels to, uh, to Israel. And thank you for, uh, thank you for, uh, let, let me make you the, um, my armor bearer because, because now I'm really the king. Um, seriously, think about, think about why it is you are tempted to lie. You are always tempted to lie to improve your circumstances, and to unjustly gain a reward. Right? Every time you do it, that's why you're doing it. Um, better, better to be right before God and not have the pie until you finish your homework. Right? Remember that God is watching. A um, few more applications from here. Um, first, to is the same as what I just said. God sees. God sees. God sees all that you do. God sees all of your thoughts. God sees every intent of the thoughts of your heart. God sees. Right? He saw the Amalekites' deed, and he saw the Amalekites' lie, and, and, that's, um, and that is what led to this man's just end. Remember what Jesus said, but there is nothing covered up that, which, uh, that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Okay? God sees, and God will proclaim it to, um, on the housetops. Second. Think of the importance of grief here. Verse 12. He mourned and wept and fasted until evening. It honors the Lord as the sovereign king, doesn't it? To grieve well. To grieve when grief is in order. Right? It's, it's not good to grieve when, when you should be rejoicing. Um, but it is good to, to go into the house of mourning and to uh, grieve with those who are grieving. Because you, in grief, are honoring that God has sovereignly done what he's done. Right? We acknowledge God's sovereignty even as we mourn. That is not to disparage his sovereignty, right? To say, oh, God, we hate what you've done. No, it's to acknowledge, right? And to pour ourselves out before the Lord and say, God, you have done this. And, and we are undone by it, right? And it also helps the heart, right? To grieve when you're supposed to grieve, it helps your heart. Uh, we know people who have refused to grieve after they lost a spouse or something along those lines, right? And you know that that person is going to come to a crashing halt at some point. That they haven't grieved, they've been busy, they, they've denied the fact that, that a spouse has died or a child or someone has died. They haven't grieved at all. And then, and then likely what's going to happen is um, they haven't, they haven't been assisted by the grief of others and the grief of their church. And they've been trying to grieve on their own. And it will, um, it will fall upon their shoulders in a very quick moment. And they will despair. Um, and then also, do you mourn for more than death? Do you mourn for more than death? Do you mourn for the apostasy of the church? Do you mourn for your own sins? Do you mourn? 
I mean, do you grieve? Do, do your eyes leak about things other than losses of, of people and materials, right? Do you, are you grieved by this conference happening in St. Louis? Are you grieved by the, the sin that we see in our culture that's commended? Do you, do you grieve when you see oppression, right, and, 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 um, and the ravages of oppression and sickness? Grief is important. We should be grieving people as Christians. And then finally, um, fear. This is another principle of the Christian uh, life. The Amalekite should have known enough, being an alien, to respect and honor the Lord's anointed. But he had no fear of God. Therefore, he had no fear to, to, to do anything. He had no fear of God, and so there was no fear in his actions. Do we honor God's, um, do we honor God's authorities even if evil? Right? Do, we, do, we fear, do we fear authority? Do we fear God's authority? Do we th- ever think that, that disobeying God's commands brings God's discipline, and at times it's harsh, and that we should be fearful, therefore. Of course, we should be that way, but we so seldom are. The fear of the Lord is, is, uh, is refreshing to our souls. It is good, right? So that's another thing I pull out of here. The Amalekite had no fear. He just bumbled into his next circumstance thinking he was going to get advantage, but he had no fear and honor for God's authorities. And therefore, what happened to him? He died very quickly. God dealt with him in a moment. If he's not going to fear even the Lord's anointed and he's going to have no fear for me, then his life is not going to be long. It's going to be short. And he's dealt with. Right? That's why Scripture says there's a promise that goes along with honor your father and your mother. Of course, honoring your father and mother is honoring God himself, who is our father, right? And what does it say? It's a promise. Your life will be long in the land. And that's perplexing, isn't it? It's pretty simple, though. Samuel Kite was cut down because he had no fear No honor for his father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn from your word and learning that we would put it into action. Father, I pray that you would would help us by your Holy Spirit not just to forget these words and, and move on to our next activity, but Father, that we would chew on 2 Samuel 1. That we would contemplate the times when we've been tempted, even in the, the recent days, even today, to lie, to improve our circumstances. Father, I pray that we would properly fear your authority. And Lord, I pray that we would know, know how to properly grieve, not as those without hope, but truly to grieve with those who grieve and to honor you in our grief. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.